live from the Ashley Marie Playhouse in Weirton, West Virginia, and sponsored by Joya Lytle, Allstate Insurance, the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company, in partnership with Striplight Community Theater, presents Cloak and Dagger on the Air, Nevermore. Tonight, a selection of poems and stories from the master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. First up, you are the wealthy ruler of a vast kingdom, a kingdom whose power and influence is diminishing thanks to a horrid and grotesque plague known as the Red Death. Neither man nor woman nor child nor beast has escaped its fatal touch. However, you are the prince of this kingdom. The fate of peasants should not befall you or your noblest of subjects. And so, you lock your chosen people away behind battlements of rock and iron. Battlements that not even a red death can penetrate. Or so you think. Listen now as Cloak and Dagger on the Air presents Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story, The Mask of the Red Death, specially adapted for Cloak and Dagger by Pete Fernwell. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the madness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were incidents of half an hour. But Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious, even though his dominions had been half depopulated. <laughs> Subjects! Lend me ears, if you please. I have summoned you here, my hale and light-hearted friends, knights and dames of my royal court, and the finest of noblemen and women from all corners of my kingdom for one exquisite purpose. Sanctuary. Seclusion. From those horrors without, it is my solemn promise that no impulse, either of ingress or egress, will remit despair or frenzy within the strong and lofty walls of my crenellated abbeys. <laughs> behind, behind these walls of iron, we will bid defiance to the contagion. The external world can take care of itself. <laughs> and now, my friends, my storerooms are amply provisioned. Eat, drink, be merry, for yesterday, today, Tomorrow they may die, but we shall live. <laughs> In fact, where's my scribe? Scribe? Scribe! Yes, 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 your majesty. An edict, oh scribe. Oh, yes, 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 yes. An edict, an edict. The prince wants an edict. Where are the official edict scrolls? Ah, ah, here we are. Upon your word, my prince. My edict, oh scribe, is as follows. 
I, Prince Prospero, declare it folly to let thy mind and thy heart wander beyond these walls. Let no grief befall thy lips, no despairing thought form within thy head. Instead, pleasure, <laughs> my friends, only pleasure, pleasure a plenty. Pleasure a plenty. Behold, my fellow noblemen and women, the prince's edict. Pleasure, only pleasure, pleasure a plenty. <laughs> and Prince Prospero was as good as his edict, providing his chosen ones with all the appliances of pleasure. Day after day, he occupied their time with endless entertainment. Squire, oh, squire. Oh, more wine, my liege. Oh, but of course. And entertainment. My guests demand entertainment, oh, squire. Bring on the buffoons. The buffoons. <laughs> Bring on the improvisatore. The what? The poet, squire. Bring on the poet. Poetry? At a party? But of course, my subjects deserve all manner of entertainment for all tastes of pleasure. If you say so. Bring on the poet. <coughs> Thou wouldst be loved? Then let thy heart from its present pathway part not. Be in everything which now thou art, be nothing which thou art not. So with the world thy gentle ways, thy grace, thy more than beauty, shall be an endless theme of praise and love, a simple duty. Oh! <laughs> bravo! Bravo! <laughs> uh, what next, Mali? Let's see, we've had buffoons and poets. I know ballet dancers at a party. Are you questioning my tastes now, squire? I remind you that there are battlements from which which one can be hanged. Uh, bring on the ballet dancers. <laughs> and finally, musicians. Finally, quality entertainment. Squire, my royal sash can easily be tied around your neck. <laughs> but of course, my prince. More wine? Oh, but of course, my squire. Month after month, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. <laughs> Friends, lend me ears if you please. <laughs> I have been duly informed by someone or the other. Your, your scribe, oh sire. Yes, yes, my scribe. I have been duly informed that we are nearing the fifth month. Uh, the sixth month. It's actually the sixth month, my liege. Months, days, even years. Who can tell with time anymore? What matters is that death has passed us by. Oh, for these walls, these battlements, all my creation have protected us. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you're, you're, you're too kind, my courtiers. Uh, now, in celebration of this momentous occasion, I propose... Scribe, you're disturbing my grand pronouncement. Uh, oh, oh, but uh, is this not an edict, my prince? Who has time for edicts, scribe? 
They know that I am their leader. Now put your pen to rest and join the rest of us <laughs> in a ball. A ball? Uh, a ball? Yes, yes, a ball, dear squire. I propose we celebrate our renewed life and our conquering of death with a masked ball. <laughs> yes, yes, my friends, a magnificent masquerade. Pleasure knows no end within the walls of Prince Prospero's sanctuary. More wine, squire. Yes, my liege. More wine for everybody. If they have one glass, give them two. Two, give them three. Three, give them whatever comes after three. <laughs> oh, buffoons, entertain me. And so Prince Prospero and his thousand chosen guests donned their masks and celebrated with even greater fervor than before. Oh, it was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, spread out over an imperial suite of seven chambers. Each chamber a testament to Prince Prospero's love of the bazaar. In the middle of each chamber, there was a tall and narrow Gothic window of stained glass. Each window's a color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. The first chamber was blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh chamber was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries. These tapestries hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the direct decorations. The panes were scarlet, a deep blood color. Aye, these rooms give me the creeps. Never mind that. Prince Prospero has ordered that each room be lit with fire. Where's that light? Here you go. <gasps> it's hideous, I say, hideous. Oh, they're just shadows. Don't let your imagination overtake you, dear girl. Here, have a sip. But this is the prince's wine. His finest. But won't he... He hasn't so far. Drink up, my girl. You don't have to tell me twice. Couldn't we let a little bit of sunlight in, the way the fire plays off the panes? Gaudy. Fantastic. Ghastly. Apparitions from beyond the grave. Shadows of the Red Death without. I rather like it. You're too drunk to dislike it. Perhaps. Or you're too sober to like it. Perhaps. Chin up, old girl. One more room. That's all. This room is the worst of all. The light turns everyone in to a monster. I see nothing but blood beyond the threshold. It's the red panes. Here, hand me the light. And that horrid, gigantic clock. Oh, made of ebony. Imported from some exotic locale. One of the prince's prized possessions. Do you hear that? What? Nothing. You're right. Haven't you noticed every time this clock sounds the hour, the entire abbey goes quiet? 
the musicians, the waltzers, even the buffoons. The entire company stops. Look at their faces. Pale, nervous, disconcerted, tremulous, as if their confused reverie has given way to the meditation of death. And then the chiming ceases. They smile at each other, whispering <laughs> that it was nothing and vowing to not allow the next chiming of the hour disturb them. And their folly begins anew. I wasn't aware you were such a poet, my dear. It's not poetry, squire. It's deceit. We're deceiving ourselves if we think we can keep. Now, now, my girl, calm yourself. Have another drink. Our work here is done. Death and time go hand in hand, squire. Time flies even as death comes. You wait until the next hour. By my count, the next hour won't arrive for another 3,600 seconds, by which point I plan to be halfway through another bottle. But, squire, I'm telling you... You worry too much, old girl. It was a gay and magnificent revel, the prince's masquerade. Prince Pos Prospero's taste may have been peculiar, but he had a fine eye for color and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought Prince Prospero mad. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure he was not. His followers felt that he was not, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. <laughs> An edict, O oh scribe! But, 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 my liege, I, I thought edicts were no longer... Uh, must you always question me, scribe? I remind you, the doors to this abbey still open outwards. An edict! All costumes for my grand masquerade ball are to be grotesque. Grotesque? Except for you, scribe. Your mere appearance is all that's required to be this grotesque. <laughs> of course, my liege. I desire much glare, glitter. Glare, glitter. Piquancy. Piquancy. Phantasm. Phantasm. And the theme, oh scribe, dreams. D dreams? Multitude of dreams, waltzing before me, and I desire arabesque figures. Arabesque. With unsuited, gangly limbs and misfit accoutrements. Unsuited, gangly, misfit. Delirious fancies, dancing at my feet. Who fancies that only the maddest of madmen could imagine? Delirious fancies? It is my masquerade ball, O oh scribe, and I want it all. By edict of Prince Prospero, I desire beauty. I crave the wanton terror of excited, excited disgust. Rocking my seven chambers to and fro. I, uh, now, could you repeat, Ah? Oh, you are my scribe. Keep it up, or it will be. I, it's the right death, I know. I know, your majesty. You're learning, O oh scribe. Now, issue the edict and let the masquerade commence. And the prince was given his multitude of dreams. Dreams that writhed in and about, taking hue from the color of each room, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. 
choir. Awaken, awaken. The clock, she sounds the hour yet again. Look, squire, again all is still. All is silent, save the voice of the clock. Again, everyone is frozen stiff in place. And me, it left on my back. Again, all is still. All is silent, save the voice of the clock. Again, everyone is frozen stiff in place. And again, they laugh, telling themselves that time means nothing. Fill the cup, my lady, and let the trifles be. The music swells, the dreams live, the waltzers writhe about. More merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays of the lit fires. But to the seventh chamber there are now none of the maskers who venture. For the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls on the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other chambers. These other chambers were densely crowded, in them beat fervently the heart of life. The revel went whirling on until at length. Midnight, squire. Midnight sounding upon the clock. Each strike gives me chills. Oh, then allow me to warm your loins, my mistress. Another round of the master's finest. Oh, yes. I'm beginning to think you are the wisest among us, squire. And as with every hour before, the music ceased. The evolutions of the waltzers were quieted. There was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. And thus it happened that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whimsically around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur of horror and end of disgust. But then the eyes of Prince Prospero fell on this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. What's this? Who is this man who has halted my masquerade? It was my edict that this charade should not cease. Was it not, O scribe? Indeed, my prince, per your transcribed word and affixed with your royal seal. The very sight of the masked figure caused the prince to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste. What? Horrors have, have convened upon my assembly that this tall, gaunt figure. From head to foot, my liege, he wears a shroud. Like a stiffened corpse, as, as if he moves, as if just stepping forth from the grave. His clothes are dappled in blood. There is sweat upon his brow. His face is sunken, my liege. This figure... Ah! He is the Red Death! Oh! 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 
The prince's guest raged in terror before him, his brow reddened with rage. In an assembly of phantasms such as we have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited. Oh. <laughs> but the figure in question how had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. Silence! Who dares? Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. And his words rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man. And the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. Guards, seize this man and unmask him, that we may, they may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. At first... There was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder. But from a certain nameless awe, there was found none who would put forth a hand to seize him. And the vast assembly, as with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls. Is there none among you willing to seize this man? After the salvation I have bestowed you, Permit him, with deliberate and stately step, to move uninterrupted and unimpeded through these chambers within a yard of my person? Do, do you not hear me? I have saved all of you from the Red Death without. I have provided you with sanctuary. Within these abbey walls, I have protected you, unleashed salvation upon you. Cowards. All of you cowards. You leave this man, this intruder, to be defeated by the prince himself? Scribe? I, I, I am but a bearer of your message, my liege, not your defender. My squire? I am but your servant, my prince. I am not your army. Traitors and cowards, I am surrounded on all sides by the weakest of men and the most dishonorable of subjects. Let it be written, scribe, that Prince Prospero knows no fear. Let it be known, squire, that he does not draw back upon this moment, that he does not cower before the shadow of the Red Death! Ah! Prince Prospero bore aloft a drawn dagger, approaching in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the spectral figure, who was now approaching the Velvet Chamber, the seventh room, the apartment of blood and monsters. Face me, intruder. Remove your mask. Reveal your visage within these halls of my creation. For a fleeting second, the figure stood unmoved, unfathomable, as if he were contemplating his great escape. Then, suddenly, he turned and confronted the pursuer. <laughs> ah! So boldly drawn in confrontation, dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which most instantly afterward fell prostrate in death, the Prince Prospero. My Prince! That man has killed our Prince. Seize him! Uh. <laughs> 
Jesus acknowledged the presence of the Red Death, he had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of the revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of fire expired. And darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. So closes Cloak and Dagger on the Air's production of Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story, The Mask of the Red Death, specially adapted for Cloak and Dagger by Pete Fernball and starring Rob DeSantis as Prince Prospero, Dave Zaneski as the scribe, Noah Hilton as the squire, Pete Fernball as the poet, and Nancy Longo, Bethany Fernball, and Carissa Martin as our narrators the mask of death. Please give a special round of applause for our community guest star, Molly Mosser, who played the housekeeper. <laughs> Shane Meredith, Bethany Fernbaugh, and Carissa Martin managed our sound, and Lake and Weaver provided our original score. And now, this. They're calling her the Black Widow Strangler. Violet Virginia Vane, the sixth and final wife of billionaire Rufus G. Reynolds, was arrested today and charged with first-degree murder in the death of her late husband. At a press conference, Detective Chandler Hammett had this to say. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Uh, Ladies and sir, gentlemen. Sir, sir, you, you got a mic right there. Voodoo technology officer, I'll use my voice. Ladies and gentlemen, after an extensive investigation, the Weirton Police Department has concluded that Violet Virginia Vane smothered her husband, Rufus G. Reynolds, to death while he slept. As she was escorted out of Rufus Reynolds' palatial estate, Ms. Vane had this to say. I'm a patsy. It was his eye. His hideous eye. He hypnotized me with his eye. It drove me to madness. It was his eye, I tell you. It was his eye! According to Detective Hammett, it was actually her eyes that were sizing up Reynolds' massive life insurance policy after Miss Vane discovered she would receive none of the Reynolds' fortune upon his death. In response to her arrest, Ms. Vane's lawyer disputed Detective Hammett's claims and said his client had been driven to insanity after being trapped in a loveless marriage and held prisoner in Mr. Reynolds' home. Ms. Vane will be pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Violet Virginia Vane married Rufus Griswold Reynolds after the two met at the Inca Dinka Doo Gentlemen's Club where she was performing. Ms. Vane was 21, Mr. Reynolds was 86. Welcome back to Fox Business. I'm Ewart Arney, 
I have with me in the studio Wall Street tycoon Rufus Griswold Reynolds. Uh, uh, Rufus, so you've married this, uh, this young lady, this uh, Violet Virginia Vane, your sixth wife, after your rocky marital history. Your, your keen business sense would argue against this. Are you genuinely attracted to this woman? <gasps> From the chest down. <laughs> but uh, I'm only 5'4", so that's all I see. It's, uh, it's double D vision. <laughs> I, I just keep my oxygen handy, and when she gets up close... <laughs> Well, plus, plus we, we have a lot in common. I made my fortune in plastics, and her body is plastic. <laughs> Apparently, she, she's been investing in my company long before I invested in hers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, but I understand you didn't even sign a prenup. Aren't you concerned she's marrying you only for your money? Not at all. Oh, been down this road before and have the monthly alimony payments to prove it. This one will never get her hands on my considerable moolah. Uh, really? Uh, don't you know her reputation? I only marry women with reputations. <laughs> well, this woman, she's, she's rumored to have gotten her hands on, on many men's wallets. Uh, but you see, uh, I have a digital wallet. A digital wallet? Why, yes. I've invested the entirety of my fortune in Bitcoin. Bitcoin? You mean the cryptocurrency that's become all the latest rage on Wall Street? That's right. Bitcoin benefits me while I'm alive. After I'm dead, uh, who cares? So she'll never get her hands on it. She may have me locked down with the old ball and chain, <laughs> but I've got her locked up with blockchain. Oh! It was true! became nervous, you know, very, very dreadfully nervous. Oh, the tabloid said I was mad, mad, mad that I had married him, mad that five years after that dreadful day he was still hanging in there, going strong at 91. No sign of letting go of life, and of course they said I was just plain mad as a hatter. But wouldn't you, if you were as trapped as I, my marriage had become a disease, you see? Why did you stay? Was it his money, his estate? No. Well, he made it all too clear on national TV, no less, that I would never get my hands on his fortune. Was there passion? No, no, no. I really did love the old man, though. Of course. There was one thing, though. Oh? Yeah, th there was that odd. Violet, you seem awfully disturbed tonight. Oh, sad to see another day has come and gone where I'm still at the head of my table. Sad to be staring down your 30s with me, still breathing in my 90s. <laughs> what is it, my dear? No, of course not, Rufus, dear. I adore being married to you. Don't you know that? Oh, bullets, I say. I've disappointed you, my dear. How, Rufus? 
by staying alive. Oh, you have nice things being married to me, but they're still my things, and you know they'll never be your things. <laughs> Why, Rufus, I've never wanted your things. I always wanted you. More bullets, I say. It's a mystery why you've stayed with me, or so everyone out there thinks. But we both know why you've stayed, don't we, Violet? Oh, Rufus, don't do this again. But why not, my dear, why not? Look me in the eyes, my dear, come on. <laughs> Rufus. Look me in the eyes, my right eye, my dear. My right eye unnerves you, does it not, my dear? And yet, it holds you spellbound, especially when I do this. Oh. <laughs> it never gets old. It never gets old. Oh, the other ones, the other ones left because of my glass eye, and still you stay. It's as if my power over you rests solely within my right eye, no matter how much I do. <laughs> this <laughs> never gets old. Oh, never gets oh, old. That awful right eye. I never noticed it when he was wooing me with ten million dollar gifts. But when I said I do, and the gifts and the money dried up, and it was clear I was to be his prisoner. That's when I noticed it, that awful glass eye. It was the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Oh, whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, but I could not escape its grasp. Every time I thought of leaving, he would look at me with that eye, and, and I would just stay. Because of an eye? Yeah, that's when I truly went mad. That's when insanity beset me. That's when I started to have thoughts of taking the life of that old man and ridding myself of that eye forever. <clears throat> Good morning, Rufus, my darling. Why? This is unexpected, Violet. Oh, oh, oh. You, you've never kissed me more than, let's see, ten times. That, in fact, was the tenth time. Uh, did you enjoy it, Rufus, dear? Well, I wish you had brushed your teeth first, Violet. I, I've never been turned on by morning breath. Uh, Plus, my, my oxygen tank is flammable, you know. <laughs> oh, Rufus, you're so witty. <laughs> Even when I do this. <laughs> oh, uh, oh I, I never tire of your party tricks, Rufus. <laughs> Still more bullocks, my dear. How does a truthful word ever trickle forth from your college and lips? <laughs> truthful? Why, Rufus, I've never lied to you. Bullocks, bullocks, and even more bullocks. 
I should have my investment manager expand my portfolio with an investment in the in the, in the bullocks you, you produce daily. Why, I quadruple my wealth. <laughs> and you still wouldn't get a penny of it. Oh, please don't be cross with me, Rufus. I simply want to show you my love for you. Or you're trying to set me up for the grave. What? Rufus, I could never stand to lose you. Oh, bullet? Oh, oh, Christ. I'm sick of bullets. Sick of your bullets and your, your skullduggery, Violet Virginia Vane. Rufus. Don't you play the innocent wife with me, my dear. You're the sixth wife I've had. I know the ways and wiles of women. You're up to something. Rufus. I know. I've been inquiring about my life insurance policy. Oh, thought you could hide that one from me, eh? <laughs> thought you could go behind my back, eh? Thought I wouldn't find out, eh? Rufus, I would never. Hear this, Violet Virginia Vane? I see all, even with this. <laughs> never gets old. Never gets old. Just. You try to get that policy, my bride. I plan to live a long time, Violet, if only to spite you. Why, I may live long enough enough to even see you turn 40. Lucas, no. That's right, my dear. I may live long enough to see you reach your expiration date. Save my fellow billionaires the hassle of being preyed upon by your gold-digging clutches. And if you ever leave, Violet... My eye will follow you to the ends of the earth. Remember that, my dear. I see all. And that's when the thoughts of killing him began to invade my mind. I was as helpless in their grasp as I was in his. But those thoughts were not Rash. They had me proceed with caution, with foresight. You see, I continued being kind to the old man, even as he continuously rebuffed and dismissed me. And every night, about midnight, I would turn the latch of his door and open it. so gently. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray from my lantern fell upon the glass eye, his vulture eye, his evil eye. And when I saw his evil eye, the thoughts of killing him became loud, driving me farther and farther over the brink of insanity. And on the eighth day of that ritual, I opened the door and... Who's there? He lurched up in the bed. I kept quiet, still, and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening. Violet, 
Is that you? Come to do me in, have you? Pilot? It must be the wind in the chimney, or a mouse crossing the floor, and a single chirp of a cricket. Yes, he had been trying to confront himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, when I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down. I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern, so I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the glare's eye. The vulture eye, that evil eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious. So I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness. All of it, it, it dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I couldn't see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon that damn spot. And that's, that's when the madness, the insanity fully possessed me. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I leaped into the room and I jumped on top of him, laying in the full weight and breath and circumference of my, well, my bosom upon his face. Violet, it is you. I'll show you in your evil eye, you double D vision. I smiled to find the deed had been done. He was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon his heart and held it there many minutes, and there was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. He would. Now hang on there, Miss Vane. You expect me to believe that his glass eye drove you temporarily insane and that's why you killed him? Oh, yeah. I, oh, I'm not a murderer, Miss Lytle. So his life insurance policy had nothing to do with it? No. Well, you must believe me, Miss Lytle. The police have found no evidence that I planned to kill him. Even the judge released me on my own recognizance, pending a trial. Now, about that life insurance policy. Not so fast, Miss Vane. I'm afraid we can't let you cash that policy. But I'm the beneficiary. That money is rightfully mine. Miss Vane, you've been charged with a criminal act. Even if you are the beneficiary, the policy remains in limbo until your trial is over. But what if I'm convicted? What if the court finds me guilty? Miss Vane, did you really think you could kill your husband, plead temporary insanity, only then to cash his life insurance policy in? Well, I, uh... Oh. 
I think that's the hardest job as an all-state insurance agent. People think they know the law, but they don't bother to actually read it for themselves. That's why I'm here, to provide you with the best insurance advice around and to ensure that you receive the right coverage for your situation. So, well, what would you have advised me to do? Not kill your husband. Oh. I would have also told you crime never pays, especially when it comes to insurance fraud. Somehow, a loose end is always left dangling. Somehow, the trail usually leads back to the criminal committing the fraud. What are you saying? Your husband added certain terms and conditions to his life insurance policy, Miss Vane, just in case. Just in case? He had a feeling you would try to kill him. He had a feeling you would stage this whole facade for the cameras, pleading insanity and all that. And he had a feeling that I would be the one that you would come to first. So Mr. Reynolds created what's known as a contingent beneficiary in the event that his life was ended by you. Contingent beneficiary? Who? His optometrist. His optometrist? Oh, I felt myself getting pale and wished her gone. Oh, my head ached and I fenced the ringing in my ears and oh, but still she sat and stared, she chatted on. Oh, why wouldn't she leave? I wasn't going to get the money, I knew that. She knew that. Was she making a mockery of my horror? This thought and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. Oh, I could bear her hypocrisy, hypocrisy no more. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, louder, louder. Oh, you villainous bench. Dissemble no more, you were walking for him. You are the messenger, his glass eye popping out at me from beyond the grave. Oh, tear up that policy, it tells all. I admit the deed. Are you looking for an insurance agent who will protect your interests? No matter the situation, are you looking for an agent that knows the law and who can give you the best advice on your policies that works best for you and your family? Then contact me, Joya Lytle, at Allstate Insurance here in Weirton. We're located 3612 Pennsylvania Avenue, Weirton, West Virginia. We'll insure your home, your automobiles, motorcycles, annuities, retirement, commercial business, and life insurance, and many other aspects of your personal and professional life. Call me today at 304-723-3612. And remember, with Allstate, you're in good hands. Our thanks to Joya Lytle, Allstate Insurance, for sponsoring Cloak & Dagger on the air, Nevermore. Our cast included Noah Hilton and Carissa Martin as the newscasters, Nancy Longo as Violet Virginia Vane, Pete Fernbaugh as Detective Chandler Hammett and Ewart Arney, and Rob DeSantis as Rufus G. Reynolds. Bethany Fernbaugh, Carissa Martin, and Shane Meredith handled our sound, and Lakin Weaver provided our original score. Let's give a special round of applause to Joya Lytle for playing herself.
Once again, Joya's offices are located at 3612 Pennsylvania Avenue in Weirton, and you can reach her at 304-723-3612. We pause now for a 10-minute intermission. When we return, our second tale of the evening, The Pit and the Pendulum. Take this kiss upon the brow, and in parting from you now, thus much let me know. You are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream, yet if hope has flown away. In a night, or in a day, in a vision, or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All, All that, that we see or seem is, is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep, while I weep, while I weep. Oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? Oh God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is, Is all, all that, that we see or seem but, but a dream within, within a dream? dream. And now, we continue with the second half of Cloak and Dagger on the air, Nevermore. Recorded live at the Ashley Marie Playhouse in Weirton, West Virginia, sponsored by Joya Lytle Allstate Insurance, and presented by the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company in partnership with Striplight Community Theater. Here, the wicked mob, unappeased. Sanguinis inacui non satiata aluit. Long cherished a hatred of innocent blood. Sospite nunc patria, fractum nunc funeris antrum. Now that the fatherland is saved and the cave of death demolished. Mors ubi dira fuit, vita salusque patum. Where grim death has been, life and death appear. I'm sick, sick unto death, with that long agony. And when they at length unbound me, and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence for crimes against God and the state, this high council sentences you to death. Oh, the dread sentence of death was the last of distinct accentuation which reached my ears. After that, the sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. 
conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution, perhaps from its association and fancy with the burr of a mill wheel, this only for a brief period, for presently, I heard no more. Yet, for a while, I, I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration, I, I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I traced these words, and thin, even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression, their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the decrees of, of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name. I shuddered because no sound succeeded. I saw, too, for a few moments of delirious horror, the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the cell. And then my vision fell upon the seven tall candles upon the table. At first they wore the aspect of charity, and they seemed white and slender angels who would save me. Then all at once there came a most deadly nausea over my spirit, and I felt every fiber in my frame thrill as if I had touched the wire of a, of a galvanic battery, while the angel forms became meaningless specters with heads of flame, and I saw that from them there would be no help. And then there stole into my fancy, like a rich musical note, the thought of what sweet rest there must be in the grave. The thought came gently and stealthily, and it seemed long before it attained full appreciation, but just as my spirit came at length properly to, to feel and entertain it, the figures of the judges vanished as if magically from before me. The tall candles sank into nothingness. Their flames went out utterly. The blackness of darkness supervened. All sensations appeared swallowed up in a mad, rushing descent as of the soul into Hades. And silence and stillness, night, were the universe. I had swooned, but still will not say that all of consciousness was lost. What of it there remained, I will not attempt to define or even to describe. Yet, all was not lost. Yet, all was not lost. In the deepest slumber? No. In delirium? No. In a swoon? No. In death? No. Even in the grave all is not lost. Else, my friends, there is no immortality for man. Still, 
Arousing from the most profound of slumbers, we break the gossamer web of some dream. Yet in a second afterwards, so frail may that web have been, we remember not that we have dreamed. In the return to life from the swoon, there are two stages. Why, yes, you are most correct, good sir. First, there is that of the sense of mental or spiritual. Secondly, that of the sense of physical existence. Well, it seems probable that if, upon reaching the second stage, we could recall the impressions of the first, we should find these impressions eloquent in memories of the gulf beyond. And that gulf is what? How at least shall we distinguish its shadows from those of the tomb? But if the impressions of what I have termed the first stage are not at will recalled, yet after long interval, do they not become unbidden? while we marvel whence they come? <laughs> <laughs> Amid these, oh, these frequent and thoughtful endeavors to understand, uh, to remember, Amid earnest struggles to regather some token of the state of seeming nothingness into which my soul had lapsed, well, there have been brief moments when I have, I have dreamed of success. There have been brief, very brief periods when I have conjured up remembrances which the lucid reason of a later epoch assures me could have had reference only, only to that condition of, of seeming unconsciousness. These shadows of, of memory tell indistinctly of tall figures that lifted and bore me in silence down, down, oh, still down, till a hideous dizziness oppressed me at the mere idea of the interminableness of the descent. They tell also of a vague horror of my heart on account of that heart's unnatural stillness. Then comes a sense of sudden motionlessness throughout all things, as if those who just bore me a ghastly train had outrun in their descent the limits of the limitless, and they had paused from the wearisomeness of their toil. After this, I call to mind flatness and dampness. And then all is madness, the madness of a memory which, which busies itself among forbidden things. <laughs> <laughs> well, he who never swooned is not he who finds strange palaces and wildly familiar faces in coals that glow. Is not he who beholds floating in midair the sad visions that the many may not view? <laughs> but he who ponders over the perfume of some novel flower is not he whose brain grows bewildered with the meaning of some musical cadence which has never before arrested his attention? <laughs> well, very suddenly there came back to my soul motion and sound, the tumultuous motion of the heart, and in my ears the sound of its beating. Well, then a pause in which all is blank and sound, and motion, and touch, oh, a tingling sensation pervading my frame, then the mere consciousness of existence with, without thought, a condition, a condition which lasted long, well then very suddenly thought, and, and shuddering terror, and earnest endeavor to comprehend my true state, well then a strong, a strong desire to lapse into insensibility, then a rushing revival of soul, and a successful effort, a successful effort to move, <laughs> and, and now a full memory of the trial of the judges. Death. 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 
yeah. of the sable draperies, of the sentence, of the sickness, of the swoon, uh, an entire forgetfulness of all that followed, of all that a later day and much earnestness of endeavor have enabled me, enabled me vaguely, vaguely to recall. You are a prisoner during the Spanish Inquisition, tried and convicted for crimes against an authoritarian theocracy. As you await your appointment with death, you are alone, alone with nothing but your thoughts to keep you company. In one ear, you hear the voices of reason, philosophers rationalizing your situation and suggesting logic in the face of despair. In the other ear, you hear the whispers of fear, offering no respite from your surroundings and little hope for your escape. As these voices dance within your head, your inquisitors play games with your senses until the only recourse you desire is the pitch-black serenity of the grave. Listen now, as Cloak and Dagger on the air presents Edgar Allan Poe's 1843 short story, The Pit and the Pendulum, specially adapted for Cloak and Dagger by Pete Fernball. So far I had not opened my eyes. I felt that I lay upon my back unbound. I reached out my hand and it fell heavily upon something damp and hard. There I suffered it to remain for many minutes while I, I strove to imagine where and what I could be. I longed yet dared not to employ my vision. I dreaded the first glance at objects around me. It was not that I feared to look upon things horrible, but that I grew aghast lest there should be nothing to see. Well, at length, with a wild desperation at heart, I quickly unclosed my eyes. My worst thoughts, then, were confirmed. You are encompassed. Encompassed by the eternal blackness of night. You struggle to breathe this intensity of darkness. It oppresses you. It's stifling you. Oh, indeed, indeed, the atmosphere was intolerably close. Oh, I still lay quietly and made effort to exercise my reason. I brought to mind the inquisitorial proceedings. Death, death, oh, no, no. And attempted from death, that point, from that point, to deduce my real condition. The sentence had passed. And it appeared to me that a very long interval of time had since elapsed. Yet not for a moment did I suppose myself actually dead. Not supposing oneself to be actually be dead? Such a supposition. <laughs> Notwithstanding what we read in fiction is altogether, is altogether inconsistent with real, with real existence. existence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, but where and in what state am I? <laughs> the condemned to death usually perish at the autos de fa, the burnings. And, and one of these burnings had been held on the very night of the day of my trial. Perhaps he's been remanded to his dungeon to await the next sacrifice? Next sacrifice, which would not take place for many months. 
Well, that just can't be. Victims are an immediate demand. Yes, yes, yes. But moreover, my dungeon, well, as well as the condemned cells at Toledo, they had stone floors, and light was not altogether excluded. A fearful idea now suddenly drove the blood in torrents upon my heart, and for a brief period, I once more relapsed into insensibility. Upon recovering, I at once started to my feet, trembling convulsively in every fiber. I thrust my arms wildly above and around me in all directions. I felt nothing! Oh, yet I dreaded to move a step, lest I should be impeded by the walls of a, of a tomb! Perspiration burst from every pore and, and stood in cold, big beads upon my forehead. Oh, the agony of suspense grew at length intolerable, and I, I cautiously moved forward with my arms extended and my eyes straining from their sockets in the hope of catching some faint ray of light. I proceeded for many paces, but still all, all was blackness and vacancy. I breathed more freely. It seemed evident that mine was not at, at least the most hideous of fates. And now, and now, as I still continued to step cautiously onward, oh, there came thronging upon my recollection a thousand vague rumors of the horrors of Toledo. 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 No, of the dungeons there had been strange things narrated, fables, fables I had always deemed them, but yet it's strange and too ghastly to repeat Steve in a whisper. They'll leave you to perish of starvation. No. Look around you. You're surrounded by darkness. A subterranean path. What fate awaits you? A fate greater than anything you could do. This will end in death. You will die. You will die a death of more than customary bitterness. Bitterness will be upon your lips as you die. All this I knew. I, I, I knew too well. For I knew the character of my judges. I knew it too well to doubt. The mode of my death and the hour of my death were all that occupied or distracted me. <laughs> my, my outstretched hands at length encountered and encountered some solid obstruction. Oh, it was a wall! A wall seemingly of stone masonry, very smooth, slimy, and cold. I, I followed it up, stepping with all the careful, careful distrust with which certain antique narratives had inspired me. But, my friend, this process will afford you no means of ascertaining the dimensions of your dungeon. Make a circuit and return to the point from whence you set out. But how can you when the wall is so perfectly uniform? Your, your knife. In, in your, your pocket. Pockets. Oh, of course, of course, the knife which had been in my pocket when led into the inquisitorial chamber. Well, I eagerly sought it, thinking I could force the, to force the blade into some minute crevice of the wall so, so as to identify my point at departure. But, oh, it was gone. My clothes had been exchanged for a wrapper of, of coarse serge. Tear a part of your hem on your robe. Place the fragment at full length at right angles to the wall. Of course, as he gropes his way around the prison, he won't fail but to encounter this rag upon completing the circuit. Yes, yes, so, so, so at least I thought. But I had not counted upon the extent of the dungeon or upon my own weakness. Well, the ground 
It was moist and slippery. I, I staggered onward for some time when I stumbled and I, I fell! Oh, oh. oh, my excessive fatigue induced me to remain prostrate and sleep soon or overtook me as I lay. Upon awaking and stretching forth an arm, I found beside me a, a loaf and a, a pitcher with water. I, I was too much exhausted to reflect upon this circumstance, but I ate <clears throat> and I drank with avidity. Uh, uh, sh shortly afterward, I resumed my tour around the prison and with much toil came at last upon the fragment of the surge. Up to the period when I fell, I had counted 52 paces and upon resuming my walk, I had counted 48 more when I arrived at the rag. There were in all then 100 paces now omitting two paces to the yard, well, I presume the dungeon to be 50 yards in circuit. I had met, however, with many angles in the wall, and thus I could form no guess at the shape of the vault. Well, for vault I could not help supposing it to be. I had little object, oh, certainly no hope in conducting these researches, but a vague curiosity prompted me to continue them. Now that you know its circumference, my friend, explore the area of your enclosure. At first I proceeded with extreme caution, for the floor, as I've said, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. Take courage, brave one. Do not hesitate to step firmly. But to endeavor to cross in as direct a line as possible. Yes, direct a line. I had advanced some ten or twelve paces in this manner when the remnant of the torn hem of my robe became entangled between my legs. I stepped on it and fell violently on my face. Ah! Oh. Ah. Ah. In the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterward, and while I still lay prostrate, arrested my attention. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison, but my lips and the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at a less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. At the same time, my forehead seemed bathed in a clammy vapor, and the peculiar smell of decayed fungus arose to my nostrils. I put forward my arm, I shuddered to find that I had fallen at the very brink of a circular pit, whose extent, of course, I had no means of ascertaining at the moment. Groping about the masonry just below the margin, I succeeded in dislodging a small fragment, and I let it fall into the abyss. For many seconds, I, I hearkened to its reverberations as it dashed against the sides of the chasm in its descent. At length, there was a sullen plunge into water, succeeded by loud echoes. <sighs> At the same moment, there came a sound resembling the quick opening and its rapid closing of a door overhead, while a faint gleam of light flashed suddenly through the gloom and as suddenly faded away. 
And now, my friend, you see clearly the doom that has been prepared for you. Congratulations. Your clumsiness was quite timely. If you had not fallen, if you had taken that next step, the world would have seen no more of you. Of course, others have not been as fortunate as you. The tales of the Inquisition may sound fabulous and frivolous, but... To the victims of my tyranny, they're not. Consider this, my friend. Those victims had the choice of death with its direst physical agonies. Or death with its most hideous moral horrors. I am sad to say, you have been reserved for the latter. Death with its most hideous moral horrors. But for now, you have beaten death. For now. Congratulations. By long suffering, my nerves had been unstrung until I trembled at the sound of my own voice and had become in every respect a fitting subject for the species of torture which awaited me. Shaking in every limb, I groped my way back to the wall, resolving there to perish rather than risk the terrors of the wells. <laughs> uh, the wells of which my imagination now pictured many and various positions, many different wells, many different pits in various positions about the dungeon. Consider this, my friend. You could end it. Indeed you could. Your courage has carried you this far. Let it carry you a few steps farther. Into the abyss. Yes, yes. Save yourself the misery that awaits. No. End it now. Plunge yourself no. into now. one of these abysses. End it now. now. I am a coward! I am the veriest of cowards. Coward. Coward. Agitation of spirit kept me awake for many long hours. Oh, I could not forget what I had read of these pits. That the sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan. But at length I again slumbered. And upon arousing, I found by my side, as before, a loaf and a pitcher of water. A burning thirst consumed me, and I emptied the vessel at a draught. It must have been drugged. It must have been drugged. For scarcely had I drunk before I became irresistibly drowsy. A deep sleep fell upon me. A sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, of course, I know not. But when once again I unclosed my eyes, the objects around me were visible by a wild sulfurous luster, the origin of which I could not at first determine. I was enabled to see the extent and aspect of the prison. Mistaken. You were greatly mistaken about its size. <sighs> the whole circuit of this room's walls doesn't even exceed 25 yards. <sighs> you have been deceived. Too, the shape of your enclosure is <sighs> not what you thought it to be. <sighs> Fool! Oh, and feeling my way, I had found many angles and thus deduced an idea of great irregularity. Well, so potent is the effect of total darkness upon one arousing from lethargy or sleep. Mistaken and deceived. Interesting. The angles were simply those of a few slight 
depressions or niches at odd intervals. The general shape of the prison is square. And in the center of my enclosure yawned the circular pit from whose jaws I had escaped. But it is the only pit in the dungeon. Yes. Also contrary to what you originally thought. Uh, Mistaken and deceived. All this I saw indistinctly and, and by much effort, for my personal condition had been greatly changed during slumber. I now lay upon my back and at full length on a species of low framework of wood. To this I was securely bound by a long strap. It passed in many convolutions about my limbs and body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm to such extent that I could, by dint of much exertion, supply myself with food from an earthen ditch which lay by my side on the floor. I saw to my horror, though, that the pitcher had been removed. I say to my horror, for I was consumed with intolerable thirst. This thirst had appeared to be the design of my persecutors to stimulate, for the food in the dish was meat pungently seasoned. Look up, look up. And behold, look up. Thirty or forty feet above me, within one of the ceiling panels, a very very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of... Time. Time. Actually, time as he is commonly represented in the pantheon of mythology. In actuality, time is but a manifestation of our flawed perception of reality. Ah, uh, for example, most depictions of time have been bearing a sight. Yeah. This image of time, however, bears... Bears a... a pendulum? A huge pendulum, such as we see on antique clocks. There is something, however, in the appearance of this machine which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, because its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward, the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief and, of course, slow. I watched it for some minutes, uh, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder. A, a slight noise then attracted my attention. And looking to the floor, I saw several enormous rats traversing it. They had issued from the pit, which lay just within view to my right. Or even then, while I gazed, they, they came up in troops, hurriedly, with ravenous eyes, allured by the scent of the meat. Well, this, from this it required much effort and attention to scare them away. Go, go, go! Up. Look up. Cast your eyes upward. More time has passed. Be amazed and... Look, look up. up. Look, look up. up. What I saw confounded me. The sweep of the pendulum had increased in extent by nearly a yard. As, an, as a natural consequence, its velocity was also much greater. Time passes. Yet time descends. Ever closer, observe. With horror, I saw the pendulum's nether extremity was formed of a crescent, a crescent of, of glittering steel about a foot in length from horn to horn. The horns upward and the underedge evidently as clean as that of a razor, heavy and appended to a weighty rod of brass, and the whole hissed as it swung through the air. Well, 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 monkish ingenuity in torture. It's impressive to say the least. We can no longer doubt the doom they've prepared for you, my friend. What's worse, 
I believe your inquisitorial agents are aware of your cognizance of their pit of horrors, that it is designed for so bold a recusant as yourself. If I may, my friends, that pit is typical of hell, is it not? The ultima fuel of all punishments? And given that a plunge into that very pit was all part of the surprise and trapping at the torment, if you will, why that alone is an important portion of all the grotesqueries of these dungeons' deaths. And you failed to fall, my friend. You failed to fall. <gasps> so what now? <laughs> they surely won't give him the victory of release. Oh. He must be punished still. Hurled into the abyss in some way. <laughs> Major destruction? <laughs> Major destruction? Milder destruction? I was so confused. I, I half smiled in agony at my confusion. Major, minor, who cared? There was no applications of such terms anymore. Observe. The pendulum swings ever closer. And indeed, it did swing ever closer. Long, long hours passed. Long, long hours of horror, more than mortal. And with the passing of each hour, I counted the rushing vibrations of the steel, inch by inch, line by line, with a descent only appreciable at intervals that seemed ages and ages, but down and still down it came. The hours turned into days, and as the days passed, ere it swept so closely over me as to, to fan me with its acrid breath. The odor of the sharp steel forced itself into my nostrils. Pray, pray to heaven it descends more speedily. Yes, weary heaven with your petitions. Beg for your misery to come to an end, and with one swing of the pendulum... Oh, I grew frantically mad, so I struggled to force myself upward against the sweep of the, the fearful scimitar. And then I fell suddenly calm. And I lay smiling at the glittering death as a, as a child at some rare bauble. I saw that the crescent was designed to cross the region of the heart. <laughs> Oh, it would fray the surge of my robe. It would return and repeat its operations again and again. Down, steadily down it creeps. To the right, to the left, <laughs> far and wide, with the shriek of a damned sphere. <laughs> oh, the pendulum vibrated within three inches of my bosom. <laughs> oh, I struggled. Oh, I struggled violently, furiously to free my left arm. Oh, oh, it was free only from the elbow to the hand. Could I have broken the fastenings above the elbow, I would have, I would have seized and attempted to arrest the pendulum. <laughs> I might as well have attempted to arrest an avalanche. <laughs> down, down. <laughs> 
unceasingly, inevitably dead. Observe how our friend struggles and gasps with each vibration of the pendulum. He shrinks with convulsion at its every sweep. His eyes following its outward or upward whirls with its eagerness of despair. The most unmeaning despair. They close the spasm, incapable of blocking out its descent. Death would be a relief. An unspeakable relief. Your It would be slight. A sinking of its keen, glistening axe into your bosom. An unspeakable relief. And yet, it's hope that prompts his nerves to quiver, his frame to shrink away from its keen, glistening axe. It's hope. The hope that triumphs on the rack. Hope that whispers to the death condemned even in the dungeons of the Inquisition. Observe. All is not lost. There is a glimmer of... Of hope. Yes, hope. For I saw that some, some ten or twelve vibrations would bring the steel in actual contact with my robe. And with this observation, there suddenly came over my spirit all the keen, collected calmness of despair. For the first time during many hours, or perhaps days, I thought. Observe, my friend, the bandage, the surcingle that envelops you. It is unique. Indeed, it was. For the first time, I noticed that I was tied by no separate cord. Yes, and the first stroke of the pendulum with its razor-like crescent athwart any portion of the band would so detach it that it might be unwound from your person by means of your left hand. But how fearful the proximity of the steel, the result of the slightest struggle, how deadly. Yes, but isn't it likely that the minions of the torturer had not foreseen and provided for this possibility? Right. Yes, 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 yes. Well, with last hope, laced with faint dread, I elevated my head far enough as to obtain a distinct view of my breast. The surcingle enveloped my limbs and body close in all directions, <laughs> save in the path of the destroying crescent. <laughs> well, this whole thought was now, now present. Oh, feeble, scarcely sane, scarcely definite, but still entire. I proceeded at once, with the nervous energy of despair, to attempt its execution. The rats swarming about you. Wild, bold, ravenous red eyes. Oh. To what food have they been accustomed in the pit? Food. Food, oh, they had devoured in spite of in spite of all my efforts to prevent them. They had devoured all but a small remnant of the contents of the dish. Oh, in their veracity, the vermin frequently fastened their sharp fangs in my fingers. But now reaching into the dish, I thoroughly rubbed the bandage with the particles of the oil and spicy beyond, which now remained wherever I could reach it. Then, raising my hand from the floor, I lay breathlessly still. First, the ravenous animals were startled and terrified at the change. Well, at the cessation of movement, they shrank alarmedly back. Many sought the pit. But this was only for a moment, because I had not counted in vain upon their veracity. Observing that I remained without motion, one or two of the boldest leaped upon the framework, and they smelt at the surcingle. 
Well, this seemed a signal for a general rush. Forth from the pit they hurried in fresh troops. Oh, they clung to the wood. They overran it and, and leaped it in, in, in hundreds upon my person. <laughs> the, the measured movement of, of the pendulum disturbed them not at all. Avoiding its strokes, they busied themselves with, with the anointed bandage. They pressed, they swarmed upon me, and ever accumulating heaps, they writhed upon my throat. Their cold lips sought my own. I was half stifled by their thronging pressure. Oh, disgust for which the world has no name swelled my bosom and, and chilled with a heavy clamminess my heart. Yet one minute, and I felt that the struggle would be over. Plainly, I perceived the loosening of the bandage. I, I knew that in, in more than one, one place it must be already severed. But with a more than human resolution, I lay still. And nor had I erred in my calculations, nor had I endured in vain. I at length felt that I was free. Uh, the surcingle hung in, in ribbons from my body, but the, the stroke of the pendulum already pressed, it already pressed upon my bosom. Uh, it, had, it had divided the surge of the robe. It had cut through the linen beneath. Twice again it swung, and a sharp sense of pain shot through every nerve. But the, but the moment of escape had arrived. At a wave of my hand, my deliverers hurried tumultuously away with a steady movement, cautious, sidelong, shrinking, and slow. I slid from the embrace of the bandage and beyond the reach of the scimitar. For the moment, at least, I was... I was free. Free and in the grasp of the Inquisition. Observe. The motion of the hellish machine has ceased. The pendulum is being drawn up through the ceiling as if an invisible form. <gasps> Beware. Your every motion is being watched. Beware. Free. I had but escaped death in one form of agony to be delivered unto worse than death in some other way. With that thought, I rolled my eyes nervously around on the barriers of iron that hemmed me in. Observe, my friend. There was something unusual in the air. A distinct change. Distinct but almost imperceptible has taken place. Observe a light. A sulfurous light illuminates your cells. Yes, a light. For the first time I noticed light. Observe from proceeded from a fissure about, about half an inch in width, extending entirely around the prison at the base of the walls, which thus appeared and were. Those walls were completely separated from the floor. I endeavored, but of course in vain, to look through the aperture, but then, invading my nostrils, the breath of the vapor of, of heated iron. A suffocating odor pervaded my cell. Unreal. I panted. I gasped for breath. Oh, there could be no doubt of the design. No doubt of the design of my tormentors. Oh, most unrelenting. Oh, most divine oh. I, I, I shrank from the glowing metal to the center of the cell. Consider, my friend, your situation. As we see it, you have two options. On one hand, there is the inevitable impending fiery destruction. Not a pleasant thought, my friend. And your second option, the pit. The coolness of the pit. Really like falling down a well, no more, no less. And indeed, reason was once again correct. The idea of the coolness of the pit. The very idea of the coolness of the well came over my soul like balm. 
I rushed to its deadly brink. I threw my straining vision below. The glare from the, the enkindled roof illumined the pit's inmost recesses. Yet, for a wild moment, did my spirit refuse to comprehend the meaning of what I saw. At length, it, it forced, it, it wrestled its way into my soul. It, it burned itself in, in upon my shuddering reason. This is not how it should end. Throwing yourself into blackness, this is not your fate. Oh. of the well, my friend. And now the heat rapidly increases. Observe, my friend. There has been a second change. A change in the form of things. A change? As before, it was in vain that I, I at first endeavored to appreciate or understand what was taking place. There can be no doubt, my friend. The Inquisitor's vengeance has been hurried by your twofold escape. Observe. The room is no longer square. It is now obtuse. Observe. That low, low rumbling, moaning sound. A change in the form of things. Beware. Oh, a change in the form of things. Oh, oh no. In an instant, my cell had shifted its form into that of a, a lozenge, a, a slab. But, but the alteration stopped not here. Oh, I neither hoped nor desired it to stop. I, I could have clasped those red walls to my bosom as a garment of eternal peace. Death! Death! Any death but that of the pit! Oh, fool, you should have known. What? The burning iron is meant to urge you into the pit. And now you cannot escape its glow or withstand its pressure. Observe, the lozenge grows flatter and flatter. With the rapidity that leaves no time for reason or contemplation. Observe the pit, its center, its greatest wits, hovers just over the yawning gulf. All is lost. This is the end of time. This, this is death. Fool! Oh. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. A fool! A fool! Fool to hope that I could escape the destiny opposed upon me by my torturers. Fool to reason that I, of limited intellect and will, could devise a way out. Fool! Oh, I shrank back, but the, the closing walls pressed me relentlessly onward. At length. At length, for my, my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony of my soul found vent in one loud, long, and final scream of despair. Ah! Ah! Oh, I, had, I, I, I felt that I tottered upon the brink. I averted my eyes as the pit began to swallow me, to engulf me in the chasm, to engulf me in the black void of eternity. There was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast as of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating as of a thousand thunders. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell, fainting into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hands of its enemies!
And so closes Cloak and Dagger on the Air's presentation of Edgar Allan Poe's 1843 short story, The Pit and the Pendulum, specially adapted for Cloak and Dagger by Pete Fernbaugh and starring Rob DeSantis, Carissa Martin, and Dave Zaneski as the Voices of Reason, and Bethany Fernbaugh, Noah Hilton, and Nancy Longo as the Whispers of Fear. Pete Fernbaugh played the prisoner, and please give a special round of applause to our community guest star, Dr. J.K. Luthra, who played the translator and the inquisitioner. <laughs> Shane Meredith, Bethany Fernbaugh, Noah Hilton, and Carissa Martin handled our sound, and our in-house composer, Lakin Weaver, provided the original score. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis, tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Oh, only this and, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden when the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to the still of my beating heart I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor, entreating entrance to my chamber door. Some, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This, this it is and, and nothing more. Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. And here I opened wide the door. Darkness, darkness there and nothing more. Deep into the darkness, peering long, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what there at is in this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment in this mystery explore. <laughs> oh, well, tis the wind and nothing more. 
Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped the stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not at least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Huh. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stirred decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy nor lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. <laughs> Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird our beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such name as Nevermore. But the raving sitting slowly on the placid bust spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one world he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not the feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered. Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock in store, caught from some, some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hopes that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of the bird and busting door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, an ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat and engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burn into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er. She shall, she shall press, she shall press nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tough floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee. Respite, respite, and append thee from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, I said, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent, or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore. Desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, 
nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still of good or devil. By that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore. Tell this soul with sorrow laden, within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant aged maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Be that word our sight imparting, bird a fiend I straight upstarting. Get thee back to the tempest in the night's Plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token that lie by thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door, take the break from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still, still is sitting on the pallid bust of palace, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadows on the floor. And my soul from out the shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted. Nevermore. 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 of the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company in partnership with the Striplight Community Theater. Our special thanks to Joya Lytle, Allstate Insurance, for sponsoring tonight's production, which was recorded live at the Ashley Marie Playhouse, located at 2850 Weir Avenue in Weirton, West Virginia. This episode and all episodes of Cloak and Dagger on the Air can be heard on Midnight Scario a podcast devoted to seeing reality through the third eye. Midnight Scario can be found on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to like and follow their Facebook page. The Cloak and Dagger on the Air theme, The Sealed Kingdom, is an original composition by Adrian von Ziegler and used with permission of the artist. Adrian's work can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Cloak and Dagger on the Air is a presentation of future past productions. Lakin Weaver is our music director, Shane Meredith is our sound manager, and our associate producer is Alicia Ford. Our acting troupe is The Wayward Saints, and Pete Firmbaugh is our writer and executive producer. All original material in this program is copyright 2018 Pete Firmbaugh, and all original music is copyright 2018 Lakin Weaver. Sound effects in tonight's production were used with permission of the artist. On YouTube, you can find them at Swordcast, Sword Coast Soundscapes and Sound Doom Channel. Join us Saturday, November 17th at 7 p.m. right here at the Ashley Marie Playhouse for the next episode of Cloak and Dagger on the Air. Titled Elementary, My Dear Watson, we will present an evening of Sherlock Holmes stories. All, of course, well calculated to thrill and chill you to the bone. Until then, we remain your obedient servants. Good evening.